Well, good morning, everyone. So good to be with you. Thank you, worship team, for leading us to worship God and celebrate him. And thank you for singing along and engaging your hearts. If you want to take your Bible, please go to Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to continue in our series in Rebuild. Just a few uh, minutes ago, uh, Brad Willems talked about our vision statement at Central Heights Church. And as I think on those words and hear them again, uh, a vision to be a movement of more and growing followers of Jesus, developing healthy churches for the glory of God and for the flourishing of our city and the world. To me, uh, we, need to, we need to see, understand, those are so much more than just words. It represents what God wants to do in people's lives. It represents people being baptized, saying yes to Jesus, and then going in the waters of, baptizing, uh, waters of baptism, being dead to sin and, and raised to a new life in Jesus. People saying yes, committing their life to him. People saying yes as, they, as they've been walking with God, saying yes and, and no to other things in order that they can know God more fully and be known by him, open up areas of their lives that maybe they haven't to before. This is what this vision is all about. It's, it's, the, it's God working in every part of our lives so that marriages that were once a bit rocky now are becoming healthy and families are becoming stronger. And, and as people begin to just have this amazing relationship with God, it begins to spill out of their families and it begins to spill out of this church. We just can't contain it because we are in awe of God and we just want to worship him passionately, but we want others to join us in that passionate worship. And so it spills out into our city. And for some, it spills out into other places of the world where God calls them to go to like the least reached peoples of this world. This is, this is what we see in our vision. It's not just a bunch of words. Words. It's, it's God doing amazing things. This is an outflow of Jesus' commandment to go and make disciples and of his proclamation that I will build my church. A vision has to be all about him, not what we can do, but what he can do, who he is. And then a vision becomes just oh so mostly so significant. And as I, as I think about that, and I think about this lesser story of Nehemiah, it's so informative for us as individuals and so informative for, for churches and so informative for us that are embarking on a, a renovation campaign initiative to see our facilities change. But it's so much more than that. And so Nehemiah speaks to that because he is a man who had a vision he had heard of, of his city back in Jerusalem where the walls are broken down and the gates are destroyed. And that, he, that would not rest with him, that he had a vision to see it restored. And as that vision burns in him, we are given a window in the first couple of chapters in Nehemiah that God's favor rests on him for this project that he's envisioning. That favor moves through Nehemiah so much so that it, it comes to a king who has previously rejected this project and shut it down, now is moved by God's favor on Nehemiah to not only allow the project, but to pay for it. You know when somebody pays for something, there's something going on. So this project is for God. God is for this project. End of story, right? Case closed, right? Done deal, right? Well, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 4. Starting in verse 1, when Sambalat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry 
and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Joining in, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. A significant vision often draws significant opposition. Jen Kim, she's a blogger. She wrote in Psychology Today, and I quote, I remember when I was a kid and the world was at my fingertips. It's a cliched sentiment that is a fixture in all commercials and sitcoms. The belief that little old me has the power to do anything. Class president? I can become the president of the United States. Visit San Francisco? That'll be a pit stop on my trip around the world. Now, she says, as I quickly race through the last vestige of my youth, I am convinced that my dreams will not coincide with my reality. At one point, they were best friends, arms linked, ready to take on anyone and anything. Now, they are strangers. One has dementia, and the other one is paralyzed and confined to a wheelchair. What happened? Pretty sad account when you realize when Jen wrote this, she's a millennial. She's like in her late 20s, early 30s, writing about the death of her dreams and visions and goals and hopes for life. And as she begins to explain how this happened, her very first point is this, that the death of her dreams occurred because she expected it to be easy. She expected it to be easy. And that is not what she discovered. Things we hope for, dreams we have, especially things of significance, incur significant opposition. If that is true in general, how much more true is it of those who are followers of Jesus Christ? When Jesus left this world and he left a commission with his disciples to carry out when he was gone, he warned them that they would experience trouble. You shall have tribulation in this world. He wanted them to be mentally prepared so they wouldn't fall apart when it happened. That not only the fallenness of this world, so all the frustrations of things don't work out and bad things just happen because that's the way our world works, that there are two kingdoms at war in this world, that they were part of the kingdom of light and that there is a kingdom of darkness. And these two kingdoms do not coexist passively, but they are at war with one another. You shall have tribulation. Nehemiah is for God. God is for Nehemiah. But he is to experience great opposition and great personal challenge. I wish it wasn't this way. I would choose to side with Jen. I wish it was easy. But that's not how it works. So we have options. We can run. We can hide. We can disengage. We can capitulate. We can fear. We can retreat. When things got difficult for Jen, she acknowledges she simply quit. But not Nehemiah. And that's why reading about his story, although he is not perfect from a New Testament perspective, there's so much encouragement and wisdom for us in our personal lives and for us as a church through his example. We saw in chapter 1 that Nehemiah is a man who believes that God is a covenant-keeping God, that God is a, a God who is steadfast in his love. 
And so knowing that, Nehemiah's first response to opposition is significant prayer. It's the very first thing that he does. Sinbalat was governor of Samaria to the north. Tobiah was connected to the Ammonites to the east. Earlier in, in Nehemiah, we've heard about a man named Geshem who's part of the people to the south. You get a picture that Nehemiah is surrounded with opposition. Do you ever feel surrounded in your life? You ever feel like everything seems to be going wrong? Everything's opposed to you? This is his story. And the taunts of those opposed to him are directed to to tempt, to get Nehemiah to look at himself and to look at his circumstances around him. Feeble Jews, they taunt. Like, look at yourselves. Look at how inadequate you are. Will they finish up in a day? Look at the size of your obstacle. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at, at that? I mean, look at your resources. They're pathetic. How often do you feel inadequate that the obstacle you're looking at is way too big a mountain and that the resources you have, like how could this ever materialize into anything significant? And so we disengage, we fear, we retreat, we, we're tempted to, to do all those things and sometimes we do. But what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah doesn't look at those things. He doesn't look at his own personal inadequacy. He looks up. He looks up. We read in Nehemiah 4.4 that this, like this is his first response, not his last response. This is his reflex action because it was his lifestyle. He looks up, verse 4, Hear, O God, for we are despised. And then he prays a prayer that we would probably pray a little differently from a New Testament perspective. But get this, his first response is significant prayer. And then we read in verse 6, he couples that with significant effort. They continued the work. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. As Dallas Willard used to say, we read in verse 6, so we built the wall. They kept going. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So they're not all the way there yet. They're not in the red zone. Some of you will understand that language. They're at the 50-yard line. That's significant progress. They're halfway there. But you probably know when you've ever taken on any sort of big project or endeavor, like that is sort of the danger point. Because it's been hard work to get to the halfway point, And you look, you can't even see the finish line yet. You're only halfway there. And it's easy to be discouraged. Especially when you look in verse 7 that their progress to this point caused outrage from their opponents. They were angry. They all plotted to come against them and to, to fight against them and cause confusion with them. But we read in verse 9, Nehemiah Praise again. He prays again. And at the same time as practical, he sets a guard. I love this. Pray, pray, pray. Nehemiah shows us like when God, the way that God works, the, the more that he wants to do in our lives and through our lives is somehow connected to prayer. And part of what weighs in the balance for us experiencing the more that God has for us is will we engage? Will we get on our knees? Will we start to verbalize? Will we, we enter into that vertical relationship with him through prayer? Prayer. 
I received uh, two electronic newsletters from two people completely, you know, unconnected that were are working in different parts of the world and telling stories of amazing things, how God is at work, you know, where God's working in villages and all kinds of people in the village are coming to Christ, church being planted. Another one where in, in, a, in usually a more darker place in Europe where it seems like nothing happens, there's all these signs of life going on. And as I connect these two newsletters myself, I see the common thread between the two of them. People are praying. People are fasting and praying. Verse 10, we read, there's more difficulty. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. This is what they're saying amongst themselves now. These are not the taunts of those outside of them. This is their own self-talk. And our enemies said, as they repeat them, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So death threats and discouragement. I don't think probably any of us here in this room will fear our life for our lives because of our following Jesus here in North America. We don't fear that somebody's going to come and put a sword through us. But I think all of us as we follow Jesus can experience discouragement. And discouragement is a very worthy opponent because it kills us slowly. I think that's why God graces the body of Christ with people who have the gift of encouragement and those who have a prophetic gift to hear from God and then speak out to the, to the family of God so that they can stir the family up to good things. In the letter to the Hebrews, we read about a people that are discouraged. They've turned to Christ from Judaism, from legalism, from their former ways. But they're getting discouraged because it's hard. There are opponents to this new walk of faith for them. Some of them have had their property confiscated from them. It was probably hard to find a, a job or do business. And so there's all this opposition and they're being tempted to capitulate, to go back. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews says to them in chapter 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. In other words, make sure you meet together on a regular basis. Make sure you do church, whether it's like this or in a community group, small group, threes and fours. Make sure you meet together regularly. Don't be in the habit of not getting together. But he says, encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching, that day of Jesus. Now, maybe some of you are runners in this room and you've done a 10K run, a half marathon or marathon. If you have, I've only witnessed this, okay, as one of those that go to watch. But if you have, you know what it's like when you're running along and maybe you've got, they've got a liquid station, you're picking up a liquid and there's people that are stationed there and what are they, they're stationed there just to encourage. Way to go! Way to go, great job, you've done it, you can do it, way to go, way to go. Do you know the impact those words have from a stranger on someone who is running? Huge impact. All of a sudden they've got, they've got a little more juice, it's like a recharging of the battery. Yes, I can do this, I hear those words. I can keep going. We need Christian cheerleaders. Follow Jesus. 
Yes, you can do that. Maybe we see somebody, they, they just fall a little bit. Yes, get up. Yes, you can go. You can do it. God is with you. Jesus is on your side. We need Christian cheerleaders. Press on. Before Nehemiah, when the first exiles returned to build the temple, they got off to a good start. They got the foundation for the, for the temple built under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra. They got it going, and then guess what happened? Significant vision, significant opposition. They were opposed, and they stopped building and they had all kinds of excuses why they shouldn't. It's not the right time. Oh, I'm building my own house. I'm doing my own thing. It was 16 years later when the prophets stirred them up. And we read in Ezra chapter 5. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. What a great picture. As we talk about opposition this morning, and we, you know, there's so many parallels to what we're doing here at Central Heights in this rebuild project called the Moore Campaign. You might be here and, and you're part of the Central Heights family and, and you weren't really behind this project. I want to be very clear. Please do not feel that when we talk about opposition in this message that we are in any way talking about you. I believe in a healthy church that go, godly people can be on both sides of an opinion. And in a godly church where there can be healthy discussions with one another in ways that are honorable. But as a leadership that believes that this is something that God is calling us into, part of his more, which is so much more than the building, let those who hear prophetically and let those who have the gift of encouragement speak and cheer on and stir up to what God wants to do and accomplish in this place. Verse 12. There's also well-meaning countrymen now that we're made aware of who live outside the city and are repeatedly telling those who, are, who have come, remember there are builders who have come from outside the city selflessly to help build this wall and now people from outside are saying, come back, come back home, it's too dangerous. In the midst of that, Nehemiah gives voice to more faith. It's a proclamation of encouragement. Don't look around. Look up. Look up. He says in verse 14, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And I don't know what you're going through in your own life today, but I know that there'll be some of you here that you're faced with significant opposition in something in your life. And I would just repeat Nehemiah's words to you. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Don't just look at your circumstances. Look up. Look at him. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, who is for you. He is great and awesome. Look there. And then Nehemiah says, because he had stationed people together in families Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And then what follows next in the story is significant adaptation. It's just so strategic. Nehemiah reduces the workforce in half. So of all the people that were building there, he cuts that in half, and half of them he arms with weapons so that if they are attacked, they are ready to defend. 
And those who are wheel, have the wheelbarrows and they're probably bringing material, taking away rubbish, he arms them with a sword so that it's, it's, you know, it's maybe difficult, but they've got a sword in their hand and the other hand and they're pushing things along. And those who are building on the wall now, he has them strap a sword to their thigh. All these things slow down their work. It's not ideal. It's not comfortable. But it's so necessary. It's what they must do. How is God calling you to adapt? As he calls you into building in you and through you and to accomplish something with him, how is he calling you to adapt? Will you be flexible? At this point, it's impossible for me not to make the parallel into this journey we're on as our church with our physical building. Are we willing to be adaptable and flexible? There's going to be some Sundays where we may only be able to sit in the balcony. Isn't that going to be cool? Only in the balcony. Or there might be some Sundays very soon we have to close the balcony again because workers are working in certain areas. There's going to be places where you might have to go downstairs to use a washroom or restroom, depending on what country you're from. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to slow us down, maybe, physically. It's going to be uncomfortable. But it's necessary in a short season to get to where God wants to take it. There's significant adaptation. And then we read on, there's significant unity. Nehemiah devised this warning system that was better than Hawaii's. So we'll read in verse 20. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. So this wall might have been one and a half to two and a half miles long. So I'm, I can't hear you, you know, a mile away. I can't hear you. I can't see you. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. The sound of the trumpet would have carried. And if they heard it, they would all come to the place and defend together. Nehemiah is, is encouraging significant unity. Significant vision, significant opposition, significant prayer, significant effort, significant adaptation, significant F, uh, unity. And lastly, and, and maybe most importantly, we, re we read in the story there is significant sacrifice. So today and over the next couple weeks, if you are at all a sports fan, um, today you're going to see grown men throw their bodies viciously around, knowing that they are going to pay a consequence for that. Some of them have had careers of doing this for a number of years. And they're going to sacrifice again today their bodies for a, a temporal trophy, a piece of metal, knowing that maybe with their body in, in a few years, a couple of decades, they're going to reap the consequences of what they've been doing. They're going to struggle with joint problems, tendonitis, arthritis, and for some of them, concussion issues. But they'll do it because this is the prize. We're going to see in a couple of weeks where we're going to see the stories of people that have given their whole lives, some of them, in order to win a shiny medal around their neck. They've given up their social life. They've changed their diet. They get up early in the morning for their training regime and then do it again in the afternoon and maybe again in the evening. They have no social life. It's been their life. And they've done it for four, eight, 12 years. And they'll do it for this temporal medal and for the applause of people, most of who will, won't remember their name four years from now. 
Do we know the significance of being a follower of Jesus Christ and what he's called us into to live for his glory and the well-being of his people? Do we understand the eternal ramifications and significance of living for that? As we read the end of Nehemiah's chapter here, verse chapter 4, his compelling vision and how he's driven by the glory of God and the well-being of God's people, he and his team are also willing to sacrifice. We read in the last couple of verses how Nehemiah's workers, rather than go home, spend the night by the wall in Jerusalem so they can defend it if they need to. And we see how Nehemiah leads the way in that by sleeping with their clothes on through the night so that they can be ready. Sacrifice of significance. If you look at Christian history throughout the years and and stories that exist today because of significant impact through a significant vision, some of the common themes you will see is a life of prayer and devotion to God in that. And you'll also see people who sacrifice significantly as God worked through them. But these are all just smaller pictures of the great picture that we see in Jesus Christ. Jesus had a significant picture in his mind and we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, he had this picture of what would happen if he would go to the cross and accomplish what the Father was asking him to do. He could see the joy beyond this current sacrifice of people like you and me brought into living relationship with God, living eternally with him, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and with brothers and sisters and Jesus forever. He could see that goal. He could see that vision. And yes, there would be great opposition, something you and I will never understand and never know the depth of and the power of, but he was willing. And for the joy set before him, it says he endured the cross, suffered the shame, And was victorious and rose to the right hand of Father. And because of what he did, you and I exist here today as followers of Jesus Christ with an eternal hope, with an eternal surety that all that we experience here in this life is just the beginning of something so much better and better and better and better, more and more and more and more and more and more. For all eternity. What a God we serve. I'm going to close in prayer and then we are going to celebrate this in communion. Father, we thank you for revealing to us how much you love us. Thank you for that great revelation through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he came that he lived and that he died in our place, that we might have a living relationship with you today, tomorrow, for all eternity. We are, Lord, eternally grateful. In your name we pray, amen.